0: have your Bibles and turn with me to John's Gospel. We'll pick up some reading from John 18 and we're continuing to look at the final hours of our Lord's earthly ministry. If you are with us this morning, we were with Jesus when he was on trial before Caiaphas. We looked at the two parts of his religious trial in the house of Annas and then the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, the more formal hearing before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. We know, of course, from John, John eleven fifty three, that the trial before Caiaphas was just for show, because the Jews had already determined to kill Jesus. The verdict of death was a foregone conclusion. It was a sham. It was a complete and utter fraud. But the only problem was that under Roman imperial law, the power to execute someone didn't belong to the Sanhedrin the Jewish ruling council for the death sentence they had to go to Pontius Pilate and so beginning in John 18 and 28 running through to John 19, 16 which is our passage for this afternoon we have the second of the two trials of Jesus the first was that religious ecclesiastical trial but now we have a civil trial, a secular trial before the civil authorities. And what is really striking as you read through this section of John's Gospel is the distinct impression that you there are two trials taking place at the same time. Certainly there is the trial that is in the story. The shameful trial of Jesus of Nazareth where Caiaphas and his cronies drag him to the praetorium. The seat of imperial government in Palestine and as we watch Pilate interacting first with the Jews and then with Jesus back and forth between his accusers and the accused, we begin to realise that there's the trial in the story, the trial of Jesus, but the story itself is a trial and it isn't that Jesus is in the dock as the accused, but it's Pilate, Caiaphas, the leaders of the Jews. Who face prosecution before the tribunal of Almighty God? So, do work through this. Do keep that in mind. So, we'll consider first of all the indictment, that's John 18, 28 to 32. Then the witness, John 18, 33 to 38. Then the deliberation, that's chapter 18, verse 39 through to 19, 12. Then the verdict, 19 to 39 and the possibility of clemency, John 18, 39 to 40. Let's pray before we read the text together. Almighty God, heavenly Father, would you open our eyes by the mighty work of your Holy Spirit. Pray that you'd unstop our ears and take away our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. Father, plow up the stony ground so that the seed of your word would be planted in our hearts this afternoon would bear much fruit for your glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. So John 18, verse 29, so Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I shall release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. John 19 verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the officers saw him. They cried out, crucify, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak, me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. From then on Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Should I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. We thank the Lord for his holy and inerrant word. So first of all, the indictment. It seems like the ordeal we were looking at this morning in the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, has lasted all night. Because John 18 verse 28 makes it clear that Caiaphas and his conspirators show up first thing on Friday morning at Pilate's home. Luke 23, verse 1 says, the whole company of those who worked through the night to condemn Jesus dragged him to the praetorium. So the stage is set. Can you see it? We have Jesus and we have Caiaphas and we have the leaders of the Jews and the officers. And then Pilate, who kind of came to his front door to find out what all the commotion was about. All the principles are present. The court is in session. The trial begins. And we start, first of all, with this indictment. Caiaphas and his co-conspirators, they're box-checking. They're ticking boxes because they just brought Jesus to Pilate for what they hope and expect would be a quick summary judgment. They aren't allowed to kill Jesus. So they need Pilate to do it for them. But if you look at verse 28 again, it was early morning, they themselves did not enter the governor's court headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now that's an interesting statement. I don't want to rush over it just too quickly, but I want to put a pin in it in terms of its significance. Because there is an apparent contradiction here between John and the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke because all of the Gospels are clear in speaking of the Last Supper as a Passover meal. But if the Last Supper is the Passover meal and Jesus has already eaten it the night before with his disciples, what does John eighteen twenty-eight mean when the Jewish leaders do not want to contract ritual impurity and be disqualified from eating the Passover? It suggests they have not eaten the Passover yet. The easiest explanation is to realise that in several New Testament sources, as well as contemporary Jewish sources outside of Scripture, that phrase translated eating the Passover could actually refer to more than eating only the Passover meal on the night of Passover, but any of the sacred meals in consequence of the sacrifices that took place the whole night over the extended festival that included Passover night, the Festival of Unleavened Bread, often called for short Passover. So eating the Passover could refer not just to the Passover meal, which happened on the night of Jesus' betrayal, but to any of the meals that occurred during the Festival of Unleavened Bread. It's just a quick by the by because I want us to completely note and agree that the Gospels are internally consistent. There is no contradiction in the word of God. But the key thing to see in this verse is the way that John exposes for us the staggering hypocrisy in the hearts of the Jewish leaders. To be sure, they're bringing their charges against Jesus to Pilate. But John, the Apostle John, the author of the Gospel, has filed his own indictment against them. They have schemed and plotted to murder Jesus. They've collected false testimony. they created a farce of a trial. Until their hatred of him has boiled over and the beatings begin. They spat in his face with sticks and clubs and with their fists. They brutalised him. But for all the wickedness of what that was, after all, only a few short hours before, now all of a sudden, they're too holy to step across Pilate's front door, lest they contract ritual defilement from being in a Gentile's home. The hypocrisy is staggering. Now, of course, that meant Pilate had to come out to them. They were far too holy to go to him. But look at what they've just been doing. They've been lying through their teeth. They've spat in the face of Jesus. So he asks them in verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? And again, look at how they reply. It really is astonishing. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him to you. No, we are men of honor and dignity and presence, and importance, and integrity. We are pious men. We are holy men. The fact that we brought Jesus to you should be enough for you. It should be enough for you that we, the holiest of the holy, have brought him to you. That should be enough. If Jesus wasn't bad, do you think that we would waste our time? Their hypocrisy is impossible to miss. What is the charge the gospel writer lays at their feet? He indicts them for religious hypocrisy. They stand accused of thinking that holiness is only a matter of ritual purity and it has nothing to do with the heart. It's Just an outward form of compliance. Nothing to do with the heart. So John indicts them for thinking that mere religion is enough to save you. That mere religion can be a refuge for anyone from the judgment of God. The Lord Jesus Christ taught us that it is not what goes into a person that makes them unclean, but what comes out. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart is the issue, but they don't see it. They're busy, they're really busy straining out gnats, and all the time they're swallowing a camel. They're worried about ritual impurity while they're conspiring to commit murder. They wash the outside of the cup and the inside is filthy. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we live in the age of, you know, of vaccinations, don't we, and immunity. But you see, religion is no vaccination. Mere religion is no vaccination. It offers... No immunity whatsoever from the wickedness of the human heart. And here it is, in all its ugliness for everyone to see, except for Caiaphas and his lynch mob, mob like every other lynch mob in human history, they think that they are totally right. And that is the danger in formal religion, because it embraces a form of godliness, but denies its power. It offers just enough piety To solve the conscience, allowing many to kid themselves and deceive themselves and tell themselves that sin doesn't really matter. That's the indictment. Mere religion, a form of godliness, denying its power, straining at those gnats while all the time swallowing a camel. That's the indictment. Secondly, the witness. Notice the witness who speaks to the case that John is bringing. Pilate, you can see it, I mean, he's such a conflicted character, isn't he? You can just, you hear it. He's not impressed, actually, by Caiaphas. Pilate's not impressed by Caiaphas's bluster, so he tries to dismiss the whole thing. You take him yourself, don't want anything to do with it. Judge him by your own law, he says. But the Jews then remind Pilate Not for the first time, not for the last time. They can't do anything about it, only he can. Pilate can't get out of this as easy as it seems. So he begins to cross-examine Jesus in earnest. Verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 35, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And first of all, Jesus, by way of reply to Pilate, begins to probe his motives. Verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. I think that's really telling after what we looked at this morning and last week. My servants would not have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. If your concern Pilate is that I am some kind of revolutionary, some kind of insurrectionists trying to overthrow the rule of Caesar you've misunderstood my kingdom altogether it's a spiritual kingdom it doesn't advance by earthly means or by means of violence so Pilate trying to get him really said well you're so you're a king look carefully at Jesus's answer in verse 37 Jesus said you say that I'm the king for this purpose I was born For this purpose I have come into the world, that is his mission statement. That's the kind of king Jesus is. This is the nature of the kingdom he brings. This is how it will advance in the world. I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is on trial before Pilate, but he doesn't act like he's the one on trial at all. He acts like a witness, bearing testimony in the prosecution of the Jewish leaders and of Pilate himself. I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus' kingdom advances through the truth. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth and the life. He is the word made flesh. He is full of grace and truth. He rules over all who listen to the truth. Verse 37, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate's famously rhetorical reply, what is truth, drips with cynicism and dismissal. He has no time for truth. He has to deal with the the political reality and he knows that he is in a precarious position. How is he going to navigate the shrill demands of the Jewish leaders in the middle of Passover. The city is packed for the festival. Religious fervor is high. Tensions with Rome are profound. You can almost see him rolling his eyes and laughing in disdain and shaking his head at all this talk of truth. And yet with all the cynicism notwithstanding, his question sounds remarkably contemporary to our ears. What is truth? After all, we don't ask anymore, is it true, do we? We don't say, is it true? What do we say now? Is it true for me? Not, is it true? No, is it true for me? Truth has become relative, can mean something different to somebody else, it's malleable and personal. And that was clear, wasn't it, when Oprah Winfrey said to Meghan, It's your truth. It's your truth. It's not the truth. It's your truth. So as Christians, as we try to bear witness to Christ in a world where truth doesn't even exist, we are met so often with, that may be true for you, I'm glad it works for you, it is just not true for me. It may be true for you, but it's not true for me. I mean, it's difficult to answer. It's head-banging to answer. It's discouraging. What do you say? Do you get into a big philosophical debate about what is truth? The nature and the location and the meaning and the character of truth? Well, there's a place for that, maybe. But I always find it helpful to remember two things. First of all, always remember that Jesus is truth, He is the truth, and all of His words are true. So speak His words and point to Him. He is the truth, and no one can deny him. And secondly, speak those words, the words of Christ, the word of God, Holy Scripture. Speak the word, resting on the amazing promise of verse 37. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate can't hear it. Caiaphas and his cronies can't hear it. But everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice it is not my job to prove the truth it's not even my job to persuade other people about the truth our job is to proclaim the truth everyone who is of the truth will listen to the voice of jesus christ speaking in the gospel so don't be dismayed or discouraged by the relativism of the culture Don't let it keep you awake at night. It did me for a while, but don't let it. Preach the word in season and out of season. Tell them the truth as it is in Jesus and he will, he will, he will draw his people to himself. We should take great comfort from that. So we have the indictment, we have Jesus as the witness. Then we have the the, thirdly, the deliberation. In the story, Pirate, Pilate deliberates as all judges must. Well, that's a, bit far. that's a bit much. He actually squirms like a worm on a hook. But he's deliberating, trying desperately to get out of condemning Jesus. He doesn't want to be the one. And if you, if you notice the way John structures his account, about, have you noticed how many times Pilate goes in and out? It's like, it's like a yo-yo, isn't it? It's just like in and out, in and out. He goes out to Caiaphas in verse 29. Then he goes back into the Praetorium to examine Jesus in verse 33. Then he goes back out in verse 38. He comes back in in verse 1 of chapter 19. He goes out again in, chap- in chapter 19 verse 4. In and out, back and forth between Jesus and his accusers. And every time he interviews Jesus... He sees Christ's innocence very clearly and he goes out and reports in verse 38 I find no guilt in this man in verse 4 of chapter 19 I find no guilt in him in verse 6 I find no guilt in him the issue is not ambiguous in Pilate's mind three times over the text exonerates Jesus from the lips of Pilate he is innocent 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 John wants us to see. But every time Pilate attempts to dismiss the case, the Jewish leaders come back insisting he be condemned. So John's depiction of Pilate oscillating back and forth between the praetorium where Jesus was being held and the courtyard where the Jewish leaders were gathered because they were far too holy to come in really mirrors brilliantly. His internal vacillation between two moral positions. It is a visual picture of what is going on inside Pilate. His conscience says, release Jesus. His constituents say, kill him. His personal ethics say, exonerate Jesus. His political enemies demand they crucify him. So Pilate is stuck. So in verse 18, sorry, verse 18, 39 of chapter 18, he appeals to this tradition of releasing a prisoner at Passover. He thought that this was a genius idea, you know, like a get-out-of-jail-free car. Not for Jesus, but for him. He could release Jesus and he could be done with the whole mess. And that backfires so badly, the Jews demand that they release Barabbas. He relates Barabbas. So Pilate then has Jesus beaten in the open verse of chapter 19, and then he presents him to the Jews, bloodied and broken, a mockery of a king in his purple robe, his crown of thorns, in verses four and five. Surely he is humiliated and beaten. Jesus, this will be enough. This will satisfy them. And they will move on. But when they see him, they cry out all the more: crucify him, crucify him. When he suggests in verse 6 that they take Jesus and crucify him. Again they remind him only he can do it. Pilate has to make a decision. There's no way out. There is no escape. He has to decide. He must decide. And so must you and so must I. There is no putting it off. Behold the man is a question we all must answer. What will you do with Jesus Christ? And one more interview with Jesus in chapter 19, 9 to 11, yields really no more answers for Pilate. He attempts to bully Jesus, reminding him of who he is. I can release you or I can crucify you. Jesus, even in the maelstrom of accusation and violence as it swirls around him, is calm and with clarity, he says, Whatever authority you have has been delegated to you by Almighty God alone. Jesus is aware that what is happening is part of God's sovereignty, God's plan, God's purpose. But he's clear with Pilate that for all God's sovereignty, there is no escape for Pilate. Because God is sovereign does not mean Pilate is not responsible. So he says, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Judas has more guilt in the matter than Pilate. Caiaphas has more guilt than Pilate. But Pilate has his guilt as well to bear. Others may be more guilty, but you are still guilty. Jesus will not let Pilate off the hook. Any more than the Jews outside will stop baying for Jesus' blood. And it's interesting to me this week that the last thing Jesus says to Pilate, is to insist on Pilate's personal responsibility, because that is the same note that sounds in the first thing that Jesus says to Pilate. Do you say this of your own, or of your own accord, or have others told you about me and said to you about me? The question, of course, is rhetorical. Jesus is only talking to Pilate because of the other's accusations. But what Jesus is pressing on Pilate is the obligation to deal personally Seriously, with the claims of Jesus and his mission. Who is he? Make up your own mind, Pilate, who I am and what you will do with me. He cannot hide behind his office and say, I am only doing my job. How many times do we hear that? If not me, I have to do this. He cannot appeal to God's sovereignty as an excuse, as if divine providence had robbed him of personal responsibility. He cannot coerce the chargeable confession from Jesus to make his life easier. It came apparent to Pilate, there's no way out. There's no way to avoid the demand that Christ makes of him. That Christ makes of every single one of us. That Christ makes of everyone. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? According to John 19 verse 8, as the reality dawns on Pilate, he is overtaken by fear. And the fear proves to be a stronger voice than his conscience. He rejects Jesus. He denies Jesus. He condemns him. He does the easy thing. The safe thing. But not the right thing. So in consequence to this day, Pilate is known by the whole world, and millions of Christians as well, who know the words of the Apostles' Creed. The churches for ages have thundered out the sentence, I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate. His name is infamous. He he is remembered in history for having made the wrong choice. So which way will you choose? Will you make the right choice? And then the verdict. Fourthly, Pilate resolves to attempt to release Jesus. The crowds will not let him get away with it. If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. There's no escape for Pilate. He will have to make a decision. And see how careful John is to record exactly when and where it's happening. The day of preparation for the Passover. The day of preparation is the day before Sabbath, Friday. And it is the great Sabbath that falls in the middle of the extended Passover celebration. So this is happening Friday morning, nine o'clock in the morning. And John is saying, Good Friday, 9 a.m., a moment never to forget. It was then that Pilate backed into a corner, past the death sentence under the Lord Jesus Christ. A mortal man condemned to death, the Son of God, 9 a.m., Friday morning. And Pilate mocking presents Jesus to the crowd as their king. Behold your king. And they scream. They shrill. They shrilly scream. They're manic. They're baying for his blood. Shall I crucify your king? He's like the warm-up act before the main events. We have no king but Caesar. It's the final rejection of God's Messiah in favour of a Roman emperor who claimed to be God. And while Jesus is condemned by the cries of these evil men, these same cries condemn them. So let us be really clear about the picture that John is painting here. John has been a good prosecuting attorney. He's laid out the indictment. He brought the witness he presented the duty to deliberate carefully and now the verdict is in. Pilate is condemned, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are condemned, but, but get this carefully, they are not condemned by us. We are not the judges or the jury for whose verdict God is, John is writing. John's gospel is the record of the divine verdict. Almighty God himself is the judge. And if we are anywhere in this story, if we are anywhere in this story, we're not the judges. We're not the jury. We stand in the dock beside Pilate and Caiaphas and the mob. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. The guilt of those accusing Jesus shines clearly in these verses. But we must understand that our place is with them. That's where we stand. We stand under the divine sentence, guilty of rebellion and disobedience of unbelief, of that seared conscience, of fearing man rather than God. And with every petty act of rebellion, understand what we are really doing. We are saying, "Away with him! Crucify him!" I want to do things my way, my pleasure, my rule. What 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 do they call the national anthem of hell? I did it my way. But finally, and fifthly, the possibility of clemency. There is hope. There is hope in the gospel. There is hope for pardon. If you back up and look at chapter 18, 39 to 40. Pilate wants to release a prisoner. He hopes it is Jesus. He has two candidates. One will live, one will die. Will it be Jesus of Nazareth? Or will it be Barabbas the robber? The Jews, of course, scream for Jesus' death. They're loudly shrilly shrieking. They want Barabbas set free. The name Barabbas, you may know, means son of the father. And the symbolism is not difficult to notice. Barabbas deserves condemnation, just like we deserve to be condemned. But he lives. And Jesus, the innocent one, dies. God will never wink at sin. He never simply lets us off the hook. Because all sin must be punished. And the truth is, you will pay for it yourself forever in hell. Or Jesus Christ paying full for it on the cross. That is the gospel. But in order to receive such clemency, you must come to realise and recognise that you are not righteous. Righteous like Caiaphas and the high priest thought they were. Neither can you avoid responsibility to dodge this question, to dodge the bullet as Pilate sought to do. No, we are as guilty as Barabbas. So we must own our sin and come to Jesus and cry out for mercy. He has never turned away a cry for mercy. Lord Jesus, take my place and set me free. And he will. He will. So, so this week, as we contemplate what Christ has done, that Christ, the innocent one, died, my prayer is that you will realise that he died for you. Because there's pardon, there's pardon, there's hope, and only in him. So the gospel message is very, very simply, will you trust yourself to Christ? May it be so for his glory. Amen.